Hello and welcome to everyone here in the room and joining us online for today's event, Reducing European Methane Emissions, the Potential of EU Livestock. My name is Dave Keating. I'm a journalist based in Brussels and I'm coming at you live from the Euractive Studios in the heart of the EU quarter. Now here we're going to be talking about climate change, which is a big topic in Brussels at the moment. And we know that usually carbon dioxide gets most of the attention when it comes to global warming. But people often forget about methane, which is a potent greenhouse gas, which is the second largest contributor to climate change after CO2. Reducing methane emissions is one of the main priorities of European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen's European Green Deal, unveiled in 2019. And these reductions will be essential for reaching the EU's 2030 climate targets and its 2050 climate neutrality goal. The EU is also one of the instigators of the Global Methane Pledge adopted at COP26 in Glasgow, which commits its signatories to 30% methane reductions by 2030, compared to a 2020 baseline. Most of the methane emissions resulting from human activity come from the agriculture, energy, and waste sectors. In the EU, the livestock sector is responsible for 53% of methane emissions. However, there are currently no legislative measures in place to drive reductions from that sector. The EU methane regulation, published in December 2021, focuses exclusively on energy. Civil society voices have long called for a renewed focus on tackling methane emissions from the livestock sector, saying that efforts to reduce methane emissions in the energy and waste sectors alone will not suffice to meet the ambitious targets set by the European Green Deal and the Global Methane Pledge. There are a variety of possible measures available, including better regulation of large meat and dairy companies and technical measures to policies driving reductions in meat and dairy production and consumption. So, why haven't these measures been proposed? We know that this is a sensitive subject, and it hasn't been very politically popular to suggest that people should eat less meat. Suggestions to reduce methane emissions from livestock have also stirred up fierce resistance from the agricultural sector, who say it would disrupt traditional rural livelihoods. But given their big contribution to climate change, doing nothing about methane emissions from the livestock sector doesn't seem like an option. So, what can the EU do to tackle this issue? To answer this question, we've assembled a panel of experts here who are joining us both here in the room and remotely. Let me introduce them to you now. So here in the room, all the way on my left, we have German Green MEP Jutta Paulus, who's a member of the European Parliament's Environment Committee and Shadow Rapporteur for an EU strategy to reduce methane emissions. We have Lukas Vyshek, who is a member of Cabinet of Franz Timmermans, the European Commission Vice President in charge of the Green Deal. And we have Nusa Urbancic, Campaigns Director for the Changing Markets Foundation, which works with NGOs, foundations, and research organizations to create and support campaigns, shifting more toward sustainability. Then, joining us online, we have Professor David Kenny, who is head of the Animal and the Bioscience Research Department at the TGASC Animal and Grassland Research and Innovation Center. We have Helena Wright, 
policy director at the FAIR Initiative, which is a collaborative investor network raising awareness of the environmental, social, and governance risks and opportunities brought about by intensive livestock production. And finally, we have Sifra Ball, project manager for, for Wageningen University and research. Welcome to all the panelists here in person and joining us online. Now, you guys watching at home will be able to ask your questions to the panelists. Uh, if you're watching online, you'll see a place where you can put in your questions. You can go ahead and start putting in those questions now, and I will be putting them to the panelists later on in our discussion. If you're here in the room, you can also ask your questions online using the uh, QR code that you found at your seats. You can scan that. It'll bring you to Slido where you can ask your questions, and I'll be reading those out as well. So let's dive into the discussion. Lukash, I wanted to start with a question for you. So I mentioned where the, the policy focus has been thus far for methane emissions. Um, when it comes to livestock, has the EU done anything to reduce livestock emissions, uh, methane emissions so far? And what's planned to deal with this area? Thanks very much and, and good afternoon to you all. Um, what the Commission uh, has already done, well, actually, what, let me start with what the EU has already done. Uh, the EU has already adopted a climate law, which sets us on a path to climate neutrality by 2050. Um, that's a legally binding commitment of, uh, of the European Union. Uh, it's no longer negotiations. That's the commitment we have. And that, of course, requires that all sectors of the economy, including agriculture, are uh, uh, participating and contributing to that common uh, to that common goal. In order to make that happen, uh, in order to make that reality, the climate law also includes a provision which says that by 2030, the EU has to reduce greenhouse gas emissions by at least 55 percent. Now. There has to be a clear roadmap to make that happen. And this is why the Commission has proposed its Fit for 55 package, uh, uh, which is now still in negotiations between the European Parliament uh, and, the, uh, and, the, and the Council. So you're absolutely right. It's not legislation which is in place yet, but I would like to strongly believe that uh, it will be in place uh, uh, relatively soon, because again, uh, the EU has to deliver on its commitment of at least uh, minus 55 percent. What the Commission has also proposed are two other things. Uh, one is the Industrial Emissions Directive that has also that has already been uh, mentioned, which aims to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions, uh, but not just those, all emissions uh, from the uh, from from the most polluting installations uh, in the in the EU. And the other thing that the Commission adopted is, of course, the Farm to Fork strategy that was adopted in 2020, and it 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 sets the path towards making the food systems in the EU uh, sustainable. Now, there's a clear action plan, uh, which is part of the Farm to Fork strategy. It contains uh, 28 actions. Um, the Commission is set to put forward uh, a, a pretty key one uh, tomorrow, uh, and that's the, that's the proposal on uh, the revision of sustainable use of pesticides directive, uh, but more is to come. One is, of course, the proposal on feed additives, which is extremely relevant to the to the agenda and to the topic that we're discussing today. Uh, the other one is, uh, is 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 the whole issue of of diets, uh, and I think that's you know quite well mentioned in the uh, in the report. Uh, Dave, you have also mentioned that in in your in your introduction. Uh, so so there, there are some initiatives that are coming up, which will aim to. 
balance out uh, balance out the diets um, which are out of balance uh, at the moment uh, in the EU, but uh, but but also but also globally. Uh, the final point that I wanted to make is that, of course, uh, the idea is to uh, ensure that the livestock sector, um, uh, with its methane uh, emissions, becomes a part of the solution, so that it is part of the transition towards sustainable uh, food systems. For that, the Commission has, uh, um, has, has, has made, uh, I think, a very good proposal for the Common Agricultural Policy, uh, which was adopted by the co-legislators last year, and the Commission is now in the process of talking to member states about how to make the best out of it uh, and how to ensure that this transition for the livestock sector, but for the food systems in uh, as a, as a whole, uh, is well supported in the uh, by the Common Agricultural Policy. Thanks a lot, um, Yuta. Let's turn to you next. So we heard a little bit about what's coming down the pike in terms of uh, legislation. Would you say that livestock needs to be better taken account of in the EU's uh, methane strategies, and and how should that actually happen? Thank you very much for having me and thank you very much for this important debate because, as you said, methane has largely been overlooked in, in the last years and some people don't even know how large the, ro the contribution of methane towards climate change actually is. Usually this is also a bit flawed because um, methane is looked at from a 100-year perspective on a 100-year time frame, methane is 34 times as powerful as CO2. But if you look at it on a 20-year time frame, it's 82 times as powerful, which is due to the fact that it is a short-lived climate forces. So the effect takes place in the first years. It has a half-life of approximately 12 years. And by extending the time frame, you sort of dilute the effect of methane. And that really is a problem because we're talking of the climate law, which looks at the next decades and not, not at the next 100 years. So I think it would be highly appropriate to switch to a shorter time frame when assessing the climate impact of, um, of methane and also of other, other gases. Actually, I was, I was quite surprised to, to hear Lukas talking because, of course, the Industrial Emission Directive now explicitly stating methane in its annex is a very important step. because Also because the um, livestock sector is addressed in the IED proposal. Let's hope it's not being watered down in the negotiations. I have my doubts. So finally, we can take action on the large industrial farming stables, which do emit quite um, important important um, contributions of methane. But I was a bit surprised um, that you said that the cap would be a solution to addressing the methane emissions from the livestock sector, because I didn't find any real restrictions in the cap when it comes to these emissions. And actually, I haven't also seen in the cap a, let's say, the attempt to lower the livestock numbers in Europe. Um, and coming to diets, we know that Europeans on average eat about twice as much meat as would be healthy. So having a better and more sustainable diet would have the double effect of curbing climate emissions while at the same time improving the health of our citizens. But of course, it is very difficult because you can hardly force someone not to eat 
um, so much meat or consume so much dairy. So unless you want to tax meat and dairy in a very high way in order to um, bring down consumption, which is not possible at EU, EU level, I believe, it's quite difficult because you can only nudge people. You can only try to convince them. And what we are doing right now also from the EU side is rather the contrary. There's even an, an advertisement program for the consumption of meat, which is actually quite the opposite effect of what we are, are wanting to do. So as the cap has been adopted and has been um, approved and now member states are coming forward with their plans, the most important instrument on how to shape this is already out of our hands. So the only thing we can do now is address the emissions from the sector through the IED. You have said, um, you have said it, Dave, that the methane regulation is only addressing the energy sector. So that's also an indirect um, way to address livestock emissions because usually those large industrial farming sites do consume a lot of energy too. So we have an indirect approach here. But actually what we are able to do on the livestock sector at least, is to make sure that manure management is done much better because manure is also emitting a lot of methane and if you um, provide more regulation there, then of course we will be able to lower the emissions from the livestock sector, again, indirectly. Thank you. Nusa, let's turn to you. Next, you've been involved with this report that you brought with you today called High Stakes. So tell us a little bit about what that report found uh, in terms of methane emissions from livestock. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me as well. So we commissioned a study to a Dutch consultancy, CE Delft, um, to look at the methane reduction potential from three different sectors, so energy, waste, and agriculture. And we also asked them to develop different scenarios on how the EU can meet uh, the pledge and uh, what the science says is necessary. So we took the United Nations Global Methane Assessment study as a basis, which says basically we need to reduce methane emissions by 45% by 2030. So we looked at different sectors and the good news is that um, we could reduce methane by 68% in Europe by implementing all, all the measures. The bad news is that we're only on track for 17% by 2030. And this puts EU in a bit of a funny situation as one of the instigators of the pledge because, um, yeah, how can you go back to other 110 countries and say, you know, this is what you guys should be doing if we're not doing it domestically. Um, what the study also says is that we really um, need to take action in livestock sector, which represents 53% of methane emissions domestically. Um, if you look at it from the very conservative perspective, right, this is around 50 coal power plants, but if you look at that on the 20-year basis, which is what we should be doing according to um, IPCC, the rel relevant timeframes, this becomes 160 coal power plants. So it is really a significant source. Um, the study looked at different technical measures, it looked at different um, what they call behavior measures, like better 
healthier eating, basically. So we did not look at vegan or vegetarian diets. We just looked at what impact um, aligning with the health, dietary health recommendations that already exist in several European countries would have. And this is probably the biggest measure we could do at the EU level. It would lead to 15 to 19 percent of methane reductions uh, by 2030. And for comparison, technical measures linked with manure management, so that's both biogas and better manure management, would lead to 47%. Um, and um, we looked at also the feed additives and uh, selective breeding and things like that. And um, that is much more uncertain because we don't really have... Um, it's kind of new technology and it could, put, according to our consultants, lead from 1% to 12% reductions. Um, the main thing that we, we think is the problem, that not much is happening right now, so CAP, as mentioned, is out of our hands. Um, industrial emissions directive timeframes might be post-2030, so they wouldn't lead to reductions in this timeframe. Um, and um, it's really, yeah, it's really a very significant greenhouse gas, and for EU to be aligned with science, we think, you know, they have to accelerate these actions and also make farm-to-fork strategy more relevant when it comes to better diets. So there's quite a gap there between the 30% that was committed to and the 17% that the EU is on track to deliver. Uh, maybe we can come back to that. I'm interested in hearing more about the, the tools that are available uh, for for actually reducing emissions. So let's go to David Kenny next, remotely. So David, you're working in research around mitigation strategies. From a scientific perspective, how can we practically deal with methane emissions from livestock? What tools are available? Thanks, Dave, and uh, good afternoon to you and to your listeners both in the studio and online. Um, I suppose just, just to provide a little bit of context first, we'll say in terms of why we're, you know, obviously we'll say working with livestock and why livestock are so, I suppose, centrally important to providing the food needs, we'll say, globally. Um, I suppose ultimately um, anthropological research would strongly suggest that without, I suppose, research, routine access to animal source foods, the phenomenal growth in, you know, global human populations we've witnessed over the last 10,000 years, you know, to, together with, I suppose, the increase in terms of evolution, in terms of cognitive abilities, you know, would have been highly un unlikely. Indeed, there's no, it's not a coincidence that I suppose the development will say in the human population uh, and, and it's, it's, it's in so in growth, you know, really overlapped, we'll say, with the domestication of livestock over the past 10,000 years. And as it's been estimated today that over 200 billion children were, were, worldwide were, failed to meet their developmental um, potential due to malnutrition and other socio-environmental constraints. And that even to today, one third of women across both developed and developing worlds are anemic. Um, you know, growth retardation as well as poor cognitive ability has been linked with inadequate intake of essential dietary nutrients such as iodine, vitamin E, iron, zinc, all of which are particularly fortified in animal-derived food products. Um, so essentially that's, you know, the reason why we're interested and why we're researching, let's say, mitigation strategies, um, you know, in terms of, you know, the, the well, the, the well-accepted uh, issue with methane production. And, and essentially it's a, a necessary evil, would say, with ruminant, ruminant livestock. And mitigation strategies to reduce methane emissions from livestock production systems predominantly revolve around improving the efficiency of the overall production system itself, 
So essentially improve technical efficiency as well as specific measures to reduce meat emissions from individual animals and stored manure as already alluded to. At Chagask, uh, we, are, we have conducted a comprehensive marginal abatement cost curve analysis, which we've used to formulate our national strategy to address methane mitigations from Irish agriculture and other sectors over the coming decade. And this is reflected in our climate action and low carbon development bill, which we published last year. From a production systems perspective, increasing the proportion of forage and specifically grazed grass in the animal's diet reduces overall emissions both at a growth and a product intensity level. And this also reduces emissions from stored manures. And within grazing systems, the incorporation of legumes and other forms into the sward has a dual potential of reducing reliance on chemical fertilizer, thus reducing nitrous oxide emissions, as well as improving animal performance, and thus reducing the methane intensity of uh, the resultant meat and milk. Meeting existing key performance indicators for important traits to, such as reducing age at first calving from both beef and dairy replacement heifers and improving overall cow fertility, we reduced the number of animals required to meet food production targets and reduced the requirement to carry unproductive animals within the herd. For example, reducing the age of first calving from 36 uh, to, which is predominant in, in both beef and dairy herds across both Ireland and, and in the EU, uh, to 24 months of age can reduce methane intensity of beef, uh, particularly by up to 50%. In addition, there's potential in our national herd to reduce the age of slaughter of, of beef cattle by up to three months, which will reduce both enteric and manure, manure association emissions by about 20 kilograms of methane per animal. And this will be achieved through improved genetics, nutritional management throughout the animal's lifetime, but especially during its early life. Indeed, we know from our own research that the body weight of the animal at three months of age explains up to 40% of the variation in ultimate carcass weight and slaughter. And it's envisaged that beef processing industry will encourage earlier slaughter through price premiums for earlier finished animals. A specific animal-based interventions will include a complementary mix of genetics and nutrition. We know that methane emissions are moderately heritable, and once measured appropriately, they can facilitate the breeding of animals that emit less uh, methane, either at a gross or product intensity level. In Ireland, for example, we have the largest global data set on methane emissions from beef cattle currently available and is still growing. Using these data, we recently published a study in the American Animal Journal of Animal Science that examined the novelty of, um, of a new approach to expressing uh, methane emissions called residual methane emissions, uh, or RME for short. And this essentially expresses the difference between an animal's predicted and actual level of methane output based on dry matter intake and body weight has been shown to be more effective and appropriate um, index of emissions than some heretofore uh, uh, traits. So we expect that this, all, uh, together with its underlying uh, genomic architecture, will be captured in our genomically assisted national uh, cattle breeding programs uh, in the future. And implementation of genetic improvement at farm level will be encouraged using initiatives such as our planned National Circular Carbon Efficiency Programme. We're also interested in the interaction between the animal's genome and the genome of its inherent microbial and microbial populations, known as metagenome. There is evidence to suggest that there's significant interplay between um, the biology, the underlying biology, essentially, would say, of the animal and how, how it controls uh, its, its microbial population and vice versa. And this can be harnessed under targeted breeding uh, programs in the future to reduce methane emissions. A while, I suppose, improved nutritional management, as mentioned earlier, can reduce methane emissions, both in individual animal and at herd level. There's been much effort in studying the effect of specific dietary additives, such as enteric methane suppressants in recent decades. Ultimately, the objective of these compounds is either to interrupt normal microbial-mediated rumen metanogenesis 
or to compete with the microbes that produce the methane from the hydrogen that they desperately require for the process. Many meta-analyses have been conducted over the years to assess the relative efficacy of various feed additives available, and all of these a number have been highlighted as having potential, either in isolation or in combination. And these include fats, tannins, essential oils, seaweeds, and, and nitrates. Uh, and reductions in methane emissions have ranged from anything from 5 to 40 percent, both at a gross and a, at a product intensity level. Uh, more recently, the development of a more targeted chemicals such as 3-nitroxypropanol, or 3-NOC for short, offers additional armory in the fight to mitigate methane emissions from rumen livestock. This compound inhibits the reduction of carbon dioxide by dissolved hydrogen to form methane by targeting the active site of methylquinzyme in reductase. Um, and the product has been shown to be both efficacious and safe to both animals and humans, and is now licensed for use in 31 countries worldwide. Indeed, we recently completed a large study with beef cattle using this product, uh, and we've witnessed reductions in the origin of the region of about 30%. The use and delivery of dietary additives um, as methane suppressants, while feasible under confined production systems, uh, where there's full control of the animal's di daily diet, present more challenges under grazing-based systems such as we employ here in Ireland. Thus, we and others are interested in developing novel delivery mechanisms such as slow-release boluses, rumen boluses, to allow the consistent exposure of the rumen microbial ecosystem to the most effective bioactive um, compounds studied. Ultimately, targeted reductions in methane from ruminant livestock will be achieved through a combination of improved farm-level technical efficiency as well as targeted interventions through animal genetics and nutrition. Accurate measurement of, me of emissions using state-of-the-art technology with appropriate whole systems quantification using life cycle assessment will be essential to support continued progress and recognition by national and international inventories. And the application of the circular economy approach will be vital, which includes strategic implementation also of anaer anaerobic digestion technology. Ultimately, new initiatives that, that will summarize current knowledge um, as well as, I suppose, charting recommendations for further research and implementation include a soon uh, will be included in a soon to be published major report on methane emissions from the light from uh, livestock which was commissioned by the FAO and involved input from over 70 scientists worldwide including myself and this report will discuss sources of methane quantify the impact of various mitigation strategies as well as providing an in-depth analysis of implications of various methane accountancy frameworks um, in addition, the identification of the best methane quantification metrics, as well as more, uh, the most potent mitigation strategies, has been the focus of a number of major recent and pending international scientific conferences. For example, the recently held triennial greenhouse gas in animal agriculture conference in Florida, USA, uh, which was attended by over 500 scientists from 50 countries worldwide, um, discussed all these topics at, at, at depth, and you know many recommendations were made. Additionally, the EU test. Uh, EU Animal Task Force, which is a European public-private partnership of research, farmer and industry organisations to develop a sustainable and competitive European livestock production sector and is based in Brussels, will collaborate with the European Association of Animal Production, Porto, in September this year to hold a major symposium on policies, research and mitigation options for climate impacts on, on livestock. And a further seminar will be held by... Thanks a lot. Uh, I do want to move on to Helena. Um, because I know that, Helena, you guys at FAIR have been lo really looking at the effects of intensive livestock farming. Um, tell us a little bit about what those effects are and what you guys have been doing in this area. Uh, Helena, you're on mute. Uh, it's, uh, we still can't hear you. 
Let's just check if it's on your end. Nope. Okay, we're going to move on to Sifra, and then we'll try you again in a second, Helena. So, Sifra, a question for you. When we're talking, so we're talking now about measures that we can actually use to uh, mitigate the methane emissions from the livestock sector. What measures are available to reach these methane reduction targets, particularly the, the, the 2030 target agreed at the um, COP26? Yes, thank you for uh, for the invitation to be here and to elaborate a bit more on the possibilities that we have in the livestock sector to reduce uh, methane emissions. Um, well, the research that we're doing at um, Wageningen Livestock Research, um, what we do is we focus on what is the source, so where does the emission arise, and then we try to find solutions or measures to actually um, yeah reduce the, the methane. Um, and we... We look at it in three different ways, and I think that's it might be a bit obvious, but I think it's important to, to have this uh, look at the system. First of all, we look at how can we prevent the methane uh, coming from uh, livestock. Then we look at limiting uh, the methane um, that uh, arises anyway. And then we look at what can we do to solve the rest emissions, so the other emissions that uh, arise. So first of all, how can we prevent emission from uh, livestock? Well, that's uh, already the, the biggest challenge, I think. Um, when we look at where does the methane come from, then methane from livestock mainly comes from enteric methane uh, from ruminants. Um, in ruminants, it's approximately 75% from the methane comes from the rumen and 25% comes from from the manure. When we look at non-ruminants, it's the other way around. So 25% from enteric methane, 75% from manure. Well, since cattle has the largest methane emission in livestock and the largest part in cattle comes from enteric methane, um, when you want to prevent methane emission, we look at how can we prevent enteric methane emission uh, from cattle. Uh, well, some solutions have already been mentioned. But one of these solutions is breeding for low methane. So just as we've um, uh, bred for a high milk production, for example, in the past, uh, we could also breed for low methane because uh, we've seen from the from research that uh, cows naturally differ in the amount of methane um, that they emit. So if we could make it a breeding goal, um, by breeding for low methane, we could come to a lower uh, methane emission. This is quite a long-term solution because, um, well, what we've seen now, we could approximately reach 1% reduction of methane by breeding for low methane per year. So that's not going really fast, um, but there is a, it, has, it is an opportunity. Another way prevent enteric methane is by um, stimulation of a favorable microbiome so the, the microorganisms in the rumen that produce uh, methane as a byproduct of digestion um, we are looking at what my, what type of microbiome is actually best for low methane um, that's quite hard but we've we have some indication of what what would be favorable uh, then the question is, how can we achieve that? Because if that's uh, natural in the already in the little calves, then how can you um, um, stimulate that favorable microbiome? So that's something that we look at, that's, which is also, uh, I think, 
Dave, David mentioned it, I'm not sure, uh, but it's a long-term solution it's, and it's, it's quite difficult. Uh, another thing is uh, changing duration of livestock, like what do we feed them, what actually um, has an influence on the, uh, the, yeah, the formation of the methane in the, in the rumen. And there's quite, there are quite some management measures that you could do to reduce methane. The only problem there is how do you prove that you've been doing it? So when we go to the implementation and we say, okay, grassland management is helping. If you feed your uh, cows young grass, fresh grass, um, uh, which has a high digestibility, that works for methane. But how do you prove as a farmer that you've put, that you've put your cows outside? Um, well, that's something I hope we can discuss later on in the, in the meeting. Um, feed additives have been mentioned. Um, we have some feed additives that work for low methane. Uh, the question then is, what is the long-term effect of feeding um, feeding livestock these additives for uh, several years? Are there any health uh, trade-offs? Are there any trade-offs on manure? So when the methane doesn't um, come from the enteric fermentation, uh, is there, a, is there a trade off that maybe the manure emits more methane? That's something we're still looking at. So the, the long term effects are um, not all clear yet. Uh, then, if we would like to limit uh, methane emissions, so let's say, yes, there is methane uh, from, uh, from the rumens of the cows, there's also methane from the manure. Can we do something about that? Because then we don't have to um, intervene in, in the cow being a cow. <laughs> so can we actually work on the manure, uh, which is just there? What, what should we do with it? Well, one of the, uh, well, a way of limiting the methane emission there is to actually create a super uncomfortable environment for the bacteria that produce the methane. So if you want to disencourage uh, the bacteria uh, for producing Methane, we could try to cool the manure because in a cold situation they're they're not happy, so they will produce less methane. Or could we um, uh, put additives to the manure, uh, for example, acids or something something to create a very uncomfortable environment for the bacteria? And then in the end, if we say, okay, we've tried everything, we've tried to prevent uh, methane emission from rising, we've tried to limit the methane emission, but there still is methane. What can we do with the methane that is there? And then there are solutions like uh, anaerobic digestion of manure. Can we produce biogas, create maybe a revenue model for the farmers? Since there is methane, so can we use it in some way? Um, another way to solve the methane that we cannot prevent is uh, methane oxidation. So then we actually change methane into carbon dioxide. Uh, that sounds a bit weird because that's still greenhouse gas, but it's, as we've discussed already, it's way less potent than, uh, than methane. So it, it's a bit of an end solution. It's not something we would like to promote in the first place, but if there is methane that we cannot get rid of, maybe it's at least, um, it is a little opportunity to make it less, um, uh, less potent. Um, I think actually the, the, the problem or problem, <laughs> I, I think it's the challenge is not in finding techniques that actually work because I think we have them. I think the main problem is in how do we implement those? How can we um, 
encourage farmers to use these techniques, uh, why would they actually do it? If we wait for it to be an autonomous development for people to implement this, then we're not going to reach the uh, 2030 or 2050 goals. We need more than techniques. The greatest challenge is uh, the implementation, I think. Thanks a lot. Uh, those are all really interesting measures. And as you say, the measures are there. The question is how to get people to use them. In particular, this idea of breeding for low methane is, is quite interesting. But as you say, that's a generational project, isn't it? So it's, uh, it's something that could deliver results over the long term, but probably not in the short term. Okay, Helena, I think we've fixed your mic problem. So uh, yeah, tell us a little bit about what you've been working on in this area of intensive livestock farming. Yeah, so FAIR is um, a 65 trillion investor network focusing on the biggest risks and opportunities in the global food system. Um, and we actually help our investor members to understand the most material risks such as climate, biodiversity, antibiotic risk, um, working conditions and so forth. Um, as we know, a third of greenhouse gas emissions come from the food system, over 40% of global methane emissions uh, coming from livestock, as well as all those other material risks which we cover as well, such as um, antibiotic overuse and Amazon deforestation, etc. Um, our research has actually found that only 18% of the largest protein producer companies are actually reporting on their methane emissions. So we have a huge data gap. We don't even know uh, what the em methane emissions are in some cases, and these large companies are not tracking or reporting on their methane emissions. Um, and these firms are also supplying, you know, the household names, even where they aren't headquartered in the EU, they're um, supplying household brands such as McDonald's, KFC, Carrefour, etc. Many of our investor members have made strong climate commitments, but they can't do this themselves. So what do we need to see from the policy side? Well, we do need better reporting, better disclosure of scope three emissions for companies. A lot of their methane emissions fall under scope three. Um, so it's welcome to see all the reporting initiatives that are coming up in this regard, for example, T TCFD, et cetera, reporting. It's really welcome to see the COP26 deal, but it is insufficient to align with 1.5 degrees because the UN actually said we need emissions to be reduced by 45% by 2030. And I think some of the policies already mentioned on the panel are very important. So we do need governments to repurpose their agricultural subsidies to be more sustainable. Um, and the EU Court of Auditors has found that most of the cap subsidies are not reducing emissions. Um, many of our investor members last year called for the EU to reform better its agricultural subsidies in line with both climate and nature. And we need a full implementation of policies such as the EU farm to fork strategy, um, which will have a lot of co-benefits as well for health, um, curbing the issue of unhealthy diets, which we know is responsible for around 20% of all deaths uh, among adults and accounts for around 7% of global healthcare expenditure. So there would be a really big win-win for health, climate, biodiversity, antibiotics, etc., by a greater policy focus on uh, more healthy and balanced diets. We're already seeing actually many governments starting to diversify their um, agricultural production, um, protein production as well, and investing in innovation. In fact, just last week, the UK government announced 120 million for innovation and sustainable food research, including on alternative and plant-based protein production. So the EU could be falling behind in this area globally in terms of the innovation that we see in sustainable food systems. That is an area which the EU could show more leadership. 
as well as supporting a just transition for farmers to more sustainable production systems. At the moment, many farmers are in debt. Um, it's not easy for them to revise or reform or integrate new ways of producing food. So we do need to see these agricultural subsidies reformed. Thanks a lot, Helena. So now we've heard from all the panelists and we've heard about this variety of possible measures. Uh, so let me put a survey question to all of you now. Uh, that should be popping up on your screen. Uh, the question is, what do you think would be the most effective measure to reduce methane emissions? Having average consumption of beef and pork in the EU, developing more feed additives for cows, or prioritizing production of biogas from manure? I'll leave that up for a little bit. We'll come back to that. Um, but I I wanted to come back to Lukash. So we've heard those, those varying measures there, various policy ideas that we have there. What do you think, hearing all of that from the Commission's perspective, what's the best way to combine government policies, company actions, and also individual life choices, which we touched on a bit, that could deliver the biggest impact here uh, in actually reducing the emissions and getting the EU to that 30% goal? Thank, thanks very much. That's a very big question on which we could spend uh, quite a bit of time discussing. And, um, but I'm really grateful for it. Uh, and that is because, uh, y y you know, there's not one solution. Uh, and I think that, you know, the richness of the discussion and of the contributions that we have heard so far clearly shows that, you know, that there are different pathways, there are different technologies, there are different uh, um, lifestyle changes that we, that, we can, that we can all make. I want to come back to one point that, um, uh, that uh, and I think Sifra has really summarized that very well uh, um, in, her, in her contribution. Um, I want to come back to the point that she made, but also others, and that's the, that's the role of, public, uh, of, the, of, of the public policies. A lot of the measures that have been listed here, such as you know the use of feed additives, such as um, better manure management, uh, such as you know biogas, uh, better feeding techniques, all that can be supported with the common agricultural policy. Now, don't get me wrong, this is not uh, a silver bullet. Uh, I'm not saying that you know this is the one single instrument that we should be using. What I'm trying to say is that the cap is there. Um, if someone tells you that it is now out, it cannot be touched, uh, they are wrong. The CUP strategic plans are now being negotiated between the Commission and Member States, and of course stakeholders are more than welcome to join that process and be part of that process. So once again, if someone tells you that you have no possibility to influence how the CAP is going to be spent in the member state where you come from, uh, rest assured that the possibility is still there. We are at the point where member states are uh, going to resubmit their national plans. So the point, the, the, the moment really is, is, is there now. It should count for something. I mean, the CAP has a budget of 387 billion euros. Um, I, I strongly believe that that's an amount that should really make a difference in the contribution towards the climate neutrality objective, which, by the way, is also a legal obligation for the CAP. Uh, there is a clear clause that the CAP has to contribute to the climate law. It has to be consistent with the climate law. It has to contribute to the climate law. That is the clause in the regulation on the, on the common agricultural policy. Now, as I said, the CAP is not the only, uh, is, is, is not a silver bullet, uh, and also, uh, you know the production part of the food chain is not the only where is not the only place in the food chain where those emissions 
uh, uh, can be tackled. I think we need to tackle them along the entire food chain, and that is bit the principle. Well, that is the principle of the farm to fork uh, strategy as well. A lot has been said about uh, diets and about reducing the consumption of of, of meat uh, and and products from livestock. I want to be very clear here because this is a very sensitive topic. Uh, uh, you know, the Commission uh, uh, Brussels is not in uh, the business of telling people what to eat or what not to eat. Uh, uh, you know, I, I have difficulties convincing my children to do that. Uh, but we are in the business of informing people what impacts their choices have on the planet, on the climate, on their wallets uh, at the end of the day as well, and on their own health. And this is what uh, a, a number of actions, a number of initiatives uh, will contain uh, um, uh, in six to eight months that the com uh, and the commission is going to table them uh, to really make sure that uh, that that you know consumers uh, let me say one more thing um, there's been a survey relatively recent which shows that an overwhelming majority of citizens want to change their habits they want to eat less red meat they want to eat more fruits and vegetables they want to eat more uh, uh, nuts uh, to have a more balanced diet now, what we need to help them do is to actually translate these wishes that they have as citizens into the choices that they make as consumers. Um, Yuta, do you agree with Lugas that the that the CAP is still an open and available policy tool for this, particularly through the CAP strategic plans? Is that a way we can tackle this? It might be possible, but of course... In, in shifting the responsibility to the member states by saying, well, you just have to adapt your strategic plans though, so that it can deliver. Well, it's just evading the question, why isn't it addressed in the legislative text itself? Because any member state could just come up and say, well, but I'm not doing it, and here's my legal, my legal text, I'm not obliged to do so. So basically, I still think that we might have had a larger lever to tackle methane emissions had the cap been negotiated differently, had the proposal been changed after the Green Deal was um, brought forward because we were still stuck with the old proposal from the Juncker Commission, which the um, I think it was Hogan who, who wrote the proposal. And so when I entered Parliament in 2019, it was already all there and the negotiations even in the committees were already finished. So basically it was a, a very... Well, let's let's call it a not so useful um, heritage, which we which we um, which we had to deal with. So, if there is a member state coming forward with a strategic plan which has no single syllable on addressing methane emissions, what lever does the Commission have? to go back to the member state and say, hey, we want you to do that. Because the member state will say, wait, but it's not in the law, so I don't have to do it. And um, you said it yourself on, on the healthy diets. It's a tricky issue. If you ask people whether they would favor organic food, you get 
about, I don't know, 40, 50% of people saying, yes, of course. But if you look at the actual numbers of how much organic food is bought in the supermarket, in the small stores or ordered in restaurants, that number shrinks a bit. So all those voluntary measures are something we should not rely, rely on. We didn't rely on, let's say, car industry um, developing an alternative to tetraethyl lead if you remember that time. I'm old enough to remember leaded petrol, and it's only now that um, European Chemical Agency will come forward with a proposal to finally prohibit the last uses of tetraethyl lead, which is still used in some airplanes. Small ones, old ones, okay? So nearly 50 years after the first ban on leaded petrol was imposed in the United States, we are still talking about this neurotoxin. So we should not um, try to rely on those voluntary measures. But as I said, it's, it's very difficult. You can only do something with taxation, actually, or with actually limiting the way, for example, you would feed the animals. If you would, say, have a, a ban on um, having more animals than your farm, your area can actually support, then, of course, you would limit the animal numbers. Because right now we're importing a, a pretty large portion of animal feed from Latin America. Importing, of course, also the nitrogen, which has other problems, which brings other problems with us, but with, um, with it. But if you look at what, how many animals could actually be fed from the agricultural area in the European Union, we would end up with much lower numbers. And of course, it's also to do something with export policy. A lot of meat that we produce is actually exported, at least in Germany. We export, I think, more than 10% of the meat that is produced in Germany, and we do eat a lot of meat, is exported. And these exports are also supported by EU policies, which I think is a bit outdated. You could say that the most important way people vote is with their wallets, which can differ from how they answer survey questions for sure. And speaking of survey questions, so the result of your votes is that 57% uh, of you, so a strong majority, say that the most important measure would be halving average consumption of beef and pork in the EU. Um, Nusa, when you were looking at this option in the study, I mean, we, we know that this is controversial with the public. And as Lukas mentioned, the commission doesn't want to be seen to be telling people what to eat. This is a really difficult uh, policy area. Um, but how, how effective would it be and how realistic is it to think that people would ever do that voluntarily? I mean, that's a really good question. And I want to say this is not really about individual personal choices. It is about food environments. And when people make decisions what to eat and what to buy, it depends on the price, taste and convenience. And EU, over the last five years, did spend 143 million euros promoting meat products. So imagine if this money was spent on promoting vegetables, fruits, and like traditional pulses that we used to eat, but are now almost completely out. So, and food environments are created by corporations, by government policies, by other actors in the society. And actually, when you talk about labeling, 
I think it's really more interesting, not how consumers react to that, but how companies react. You know, you have an energy label A, B, C. No one wants to be C anymore. Everyone wants to be A. Similar with foods. If it's really important how you design these labels, but the labels themselves won't be enough. We need other policies as well. We have lots of governments in Europe that now have, um, they have a, health guidance, but that health guidance is not implemented. So not, you're not even using public procurement in schools and hospitals to, to basically give people what is a healthy diet. You're not um, putting any regulation over supermarkets like what we've seen on sugar, right? Like you can have sugar tags that then results in not, you know, people no longer having access to, to soda, you know, even if you think this might be a good idea, but like companies reformulating their products so that people get less sugar when they eat uh, kind of similar products. So these are really, really interesting kind of things that we could be exploring. And I agree, they haven't been explored yet because there's this ma massive cultural war, you know, you shouldn't be telling me what to eat, but it can be much more subtle than that. Um, let me put another survey question to you all. So the next question uh, will be, in your opinion, in which of the th these three sectors does the EU have the highest potential for reducing methane emissions, agriculture, energy, or waste? So we know, as I said out at the beginning, energy and waste is what's being tackled right now. Uh, agriculture, less so. Um, Helena, let me put kind of, uh, while people are answering that, when you guys are looking at the the potential of the livestock sector, I think one thing that that I think comes out in this discussion is that it's complicated. Uh, we have lots of possible measures that we've been talking about here that will can work, but if it was easy, we probably would have done it already, right? So what makes this particular sector, particularly intensive livestock farming, so tricky when it comes to tackling this? Um, I would say, to be honest, there's already a lot of action going along in the sector and a lot of companies are trying to to implement different things, all the kind of techniques that we've already seen. There is a lot of uncertainty as well. That's an issue. And I think the lack of data about the company's emissions themselves, um, the lack of data on, say, soil emissions and some of those technical areas is a barrier to reducing emissions and some of the things that were mentioned such as feed additives as well there's a big range of uncertainty about what kind of emission reduction could be um, carried out through those actions as well so i think what would be sensible perhaps from a policy perspective is to focus on those kind of win-win win areas where we know there's already big potential um, such as sustainable and healthy diets, where we know, um, according to the study which was just mentioned, this is one of the largest potential areas where we can drive um, reductions in methane emissions. And there is win-wins across um, health and kind of health expenditure as well, um, due to the amount of um, diseases that are linked to overconsumption of certain products, such as processed meats, for instance, which are linked to certain types of cancers. So I think those areas would be um, very helpful for a public policy intervention and that would support what's going on already in the sector, such as through the companies and also the investors who are driving change in their supply chains. 
Thanks. So we have a, about half of you in the response to that survey uh, question have said agriculture uh, would yield, uh, would has the highest potential to reduce methane emissions and 27% of energy, 23% at waste. So we can see there that really the potential for agriculture is pretty significant. David, you were telling us a bit about the, the, the situation in Ireland and, and some of the mitigation measures you've been looking at. Um, do you agree that agriculture has the highest potential out of those three sectors to reduce emissions? And kind of the same question I put to Helena, what's holding us back? What, what makes it so complicated? Yes, I think you're right, Dave. In, in terms, certainly there's, there's huge potential there for agriculture. You know, and, you know, I, I suppose as part of my initial statement, I mentioned a number of areas there, both, you know, that we're looking at nationally, but also internationally in terms of, you know, trying to improve the overall efficiency of the system. And I think that's the first, you know, uh, and the term low-hanging fruit was, was mentioned earlier as well. That's the first and foremost, I suppose, uh, approach, you know, that, 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 that we can certainly take. You know, our own organization and many, many uh, research-based organizations throughout Europe and, and beyond, you know, for many, many years have spent, you know, considerable time and effort in terms of trying to improve the overall technical efficiency of, of agriculture in general, and particularly in livestock production. And I mentioned there, you know, there are a number of uh, key performance indicators, for example, in terms of, you know, the, the age at which animals are bred, you know, the amount of animals that need to be kept to replace the herd, you know, the age of slaughter, for example, of, of animals. And, and, and also, we'll say, in terms of, uh, you know, milk yield and, and overall performance, for example, of dairy cows. And I think that if we could promote, you know, greater technical efficiency within our farms, and obviously that's going to require, you know, um, greater uh, impetus, we'll say, from uh, legislative bodies as well, you know, that in itself, you know, can go a long way towards improving, we'll say, uh, or reducing uh, 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 greenhouse gas emissions, both, both methane and, and nitrous oxide. Ultimately, you know, the... I suppose the next phase of, of, of the of the program or the approach will be some of those technologies that both myself and Shifra mentioned in terms of genetics, and I think you know I agree that that's a more long term game, but it's but it's certainly uh, very very feasible, you know, and it's something that's cumulative. It doesn't cost as much, you know, and again, you know, this is this is a long term uh, I suppose game that we're playing here, you know, um, and the greater that we can understand the biology of the animal, essentially, you know, and ultimately, as I mentioned in my, in my statement, methane is a necessary evil. It allows animals, such as cattle and sheep, for example, to convert, you know, feed that's not in competition with, 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 with humans, you know, poor quality, uh, fibrous type material into high quality meat and milk, which has sustained, you know, human populations for, for, for thousands of years, you know, and, you know, allow those populations to grow dramatically. Um, and we need to, I suppose, identify natural variation that's there and complement that with, um, you know, novel, I suppose, nutritional and other management-based approaches to try to, to tackle the problem overall from a holistic viewpoint. And I think the other, I suppose, issue in terms of the circular approach, you know, the, the potential of anaerobic digestion in terms of trying to utilize, let's say, some of the methane, you know, the, the gas, let's say, held within uh, manure, for example, and utilize that to reduce overall emissions from an energy perspective within the farm and beyond the farm gate, you know, is another, I suppose, step uh, along the, the pathway, we'd say, to a more, I suppose, uh, holistic approach to reducing emissions. 
So I put another survey question to the audience, which is what type of target we think that the EU should set. Um, and so far, 64% of you have said the target should be 45%, which is in line with scientific advice. 24% of you said the 30% that was agreed at COP26, and 16% said the current trajectory of 17% is an acceptable uh, place where we should be uh, going. Sifra, based on the measures that are available that you outlined before, would you say that 45% is a realistic target for 2030, or do we need to uh, maybe adjust our expectations here a bit? That's an interesting question that you ask, because if you ask me as a technical researcher, I would say yes. But as I've already mentioned in my, uh, in my, in my first statement, the techniques alone are not the problem. Um, first of all, there are um, the challenges. Uh, what do we mean? with a technique which is available? Is that a technique which is available in theory or is it a technique which is available in practice? So is it is it um, doable for the for farmers to, to use uh, these techniques? And that can have um, very different uh, reasons why it, why it might not yield the uh, reduction that uh, that has been promised in, in our um, theoretical research or in our um, uh, research environment. For example, um, like we say, cleaning the floors, getting rid of the manure uh, to, to get it out of the, the stables as soon as possible is something that works because then you can keep the manure in a contained environment um, uh, and deal with the emissions that, uh, that arise there. But how do you keep your floor clean in a in a barn? And how do you make sure that farmers uh, keep that system working uh, perfectly um, so that there are there is no manure left in the barn? So that's a that's that's the the difference between theory and practice. Like, is it going to work at farm level, or or does it need so much focus and energy of the farmer that he will not be able to um, yeah to, to keep it working that perfectly then another uh, reason why um, uh, we might not reach the uh, the yeah the re reduction goals that we have although we have the techniques is that um, member states have very it have much more sustainability goals than only methane reduction for example in the Netherlands uh, ammonia uh, is is a huge problem at the moment. Actually, tomorrow, uh, I think all farmers in the Netherlands will be out on the streets uh, demonstrating the, the nitrogen and ammonia uh, policy that the uh, ministry has now um, mentioned they will, they will, uh, they will apply. Um, so methane is part of a bigger, bigger system where we need to look at all those uh, um, facets. To we, we need to look at the whole system uh, and not only at the one thing like methane because when we focus on methane now and we try to reduce it and then we end up with a higher ammonia emission there will be new new um legislation that has to reduce the ammonia again and then we keep um struggling i'd say <laughs> um and then also um yeah i would i would like to mention again that 
for a, a farmer to use a specific technique, it's very important that there is a legal context so that they can prove that they have actually been doing this. Uh, so how do how do you can we measure at all farms? No, we cannot we cannot do that. So how are you going to prove that you've done good, that you've used the good practices, and, and um, so that we can presume that your methane emission is lower? Um, Lukas, let me put this question to you as well. Um, first of all, uh, do you say do you think the seventeen percent trajectory is acceptable, uh, and and is it? Will it be possible to meet the 30% target that's been committed to by the EU and even beyond that, a 45% target, which the audience has said they'd like to see? Is that really feasible in the next, uh, what is it, eight years? Yeah, I think, um, thanks for that. Uh, uh, you know, going back to the, going back to the survey, which has, which has taken place about the potential, um, I think we have to be very, very clear about what exactly we, we're talking about. Um, the fact that agriculture is, is responsible for the biggest chunk of methane emissions does not necessarily mean that uh, that that this is the most cost-effective uh, or the fastest sector where those emissions are going to be reduced. Because let's let's not lose the sight of the target. Uh, I mean, sorry, of of the objective. Our objective is to reduce greenhouse gas emissions is to reduce uh, methane emissions uh, which is a subset of uh, which is a subset of that uh, the commission has done an analysis and it clearly shows that uh, emissions have to be reduced in all three uh, methane producing sectors uh, in energy in waste uh, in agriculture uh, and the analysis also clearly shows that the fastest way to reduce them doesn't mean that the other ones are off the hook. That, that Let me be very clear on that. But the fastest way to reduce them, so I would say the biggest potential, is in, uh, is in the energy sector. Uh, that, that's that's facts. Uh, that's evidence. Now, going back to this whole, uh, to, the, to, the, to the discussion, um, uh, you know, I think what we're discussing here is, uh, is, is, is oh, my pen has fallen. Uh, what we're discussing here is, is what is the best way to approach the transition because it's already clear that we are on the transition path uh, and i think that you know there's, there's three ways um of of achieving this uh and and the question that we have to ask ourselves is because we've been talking about livestock and about farmers and what farmers are going to do etc cetera, etc cetera, um is to ask you know what what would motivate the change. What? How is the transition going to be triggered? Um, and I think there's essentially only three reasons that I can think of. First one is that uh, uh, you believe that this must. You believe that this is the right thing to do, uh, and this is why a lot of people are actually changing uh, diets. Uh, this is why farmers are um, are actually investing into um, into more. Uh, uh, into climate neutrality, there are countries, there are sectors, livestock sectors that have committed to climate neutrality um, as well. Uh, so they believe it's it's based on a belief uh, of doing the right thing. The second one is is an obligation. Uh, simply, you must you must do this, uh, and I think that goes back to what Sifra was talking about with her example of of wiping of wiping the floors. Um, and that's something that uh, that's something that you know is is part of the legal framework. It's not very robust. Um, uh, I agree with that, but some parts of it uh, are there. 
The third one, which I think makes most sense, is that it has to be economically interesting. Uh, uh, I don't think there's, you know, too much philanthropy going in this, uh, going on in the in this field. Uh, it's simply you must be paid um, uh, to do this, uh, and there are ways. There are two ways of getting paid for this. One is, of course, from public funding, uh, and here comes uh, the cap again through eco schemes, for example. Um, uh, here comes the cap with eco schemes to support uh, the use of feed additives, because again. To a farmer, using feed additives reducing methane makes no sense until he or she believes that it's the right thing to do. Uh, but otherwise, the motivation is not uh, is not there. So there's a huge role of public funding and of public policies. And the other part, which is extremely important, uh, is how those products, which actually have a lower carbon footprint, are rewarded by the market. Uh, and that's not the case now, I mean, if you look at uh, a, uh, two steaks sitting next to each other, if you look at, we don't even just have to talk about meat, we can also talk about apples. Uh, if you look at them sitting next to each other, you have no idea, unless one is organic and the other one is not, uh, in what way these two products are comparable. The only piece of information you have is uh, the sell-by date, uh, uh, the price, uh, and and a bit on you know uh, on the on the uh, on the on the nutritional value um, well on a single ingredient products not 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 even and this is precisely the thinking that we have in the commission behind the proposal on sustainable food systems which is coming next year because we need to make sure that the value that is created um, at farm level or anywhere else in the food chain. Uh, or edit anywhere else in the food chain is actually recognized and rewarded by consumers so that they can actually compare the two uh, products. And I very much agree with what Nusa said. Uh, you know, this is a massive motivation also, not just for consumers, but it's also a massive motivation for those producers because they don't want to be, uh, you know, seen as less sustainable. Uh, you know, they don't want to be seen red or whatever, you know, negative story you put uh, behind the, uh, the, the the product. They they want to see, they want to be seen as as green uh, because you know there is a business case behind that they want to they want to produce that product let's go to some questions from the audience we've had, actually had a question come in about this sustainable food law the potential for one so you let me put um, uh, so Marilda Dashkali from BirdLife asks about the sustainable food law where is the room for that um, uh, Lukash has just mentioned the possibility for that. We also have a question from Nico Muzi here in the room, um, who says it's been extremely hard to shift diets through awareness raising campaigns, and taxes are not in the EU's policy toolbox. Is the Parliament or Commission thinking about measures to directly promote a shift away from industrial meat production and into plant-based and fermentation-derived protein? So, Yuta, what would be the possibilities legislatively for something like that? Well, legislatively, you can, of course, promote something. You can always promote things. You can develop a campaign. I mean, how did we get to eat so much meat so and, and consume so much dairy? This was also, at, at least on the milk side in Germany, it has been a campaign for as long as I live. Um, everyone from my generation can remember the, the advertisement for, for milk. Milch macht Mühle, Männer munter, die Milch macht... So there are uh, plenty, plenty of sentences which were um, brought forward in order to make sure that people grow up in the conviction the more milk you consume, the healthier your diet is. 
And so this is still firmly rooted in, in people's heads. And of course, we could do a counter campaign, but that probably would also take a generation. So um, there I'm back to let's at least not support the unsustainable stuff. Let's at least not give export guarantees. Let's at least not um, give input guarantees for soy from Latin America. I mean, it would be great if every animal in the EU would be out on the pasture eating grass. And that's something which I hear in the claims of Copacojeca and others. And unfortunately, it's not the case. I mean, we've been hearing about those barns with thousands of animals. So um, I don't think that, that we have really a stick. We only have the carrots on the EU side. Because, as you said, taxation is not an EU remit, of course. If a member state would find a majority, a democratic majority for doing this, there could be a higher taxation on meat and dairy products. Or there could be a taxation on methane emissions, which is what Norway had been doing to demethanize, so to speak, their oil and gas industry. And it was highly effective. And I'm not sure whether it's not possible to measure it, actually, because um, you have those little data loggers which are able to me measure the methane in a stable, in a barn. So it would be possible to actually um, find out whether the farmer is compliant and to either reward him or her for being compliant or tax him or her for non-compliance. So we have done this in the past. We have even set up those little posts that are measuring nitrous oxides in our cities, um, which led to a lot of cities having a huge problem with their, um, with their road congestion because of the air quality. And unfortunately, it needed an NGO to sue the cities in order to have EU law being enforced. But that's another story. So I think we at least have to use the carrots that we have as good as possible and not waste them on, let's say, secondary solutions, which might only bring a few percent. We have another question from the audience here. This question is for Sifra. Uh, so the question is, several times you stress that feeding additives and other techniques to reduce enteric methane emissions are not sufficient in order to achieve the methane pledge target. Hence, what other solution could you propose while maintaining high-density factory livestock? Okay, that's a tough question. <laughs> um, Yeah, well, I think to in order to um, to reach the uh, the, the total um, reduction goals that we have, um, it's very important to have all measures. So yes, we need uh, the feed additive um, uh, possibilities. We need to have the uh, grassland management um, uh, systems. We need to look at what makes an ideal silage how do we actually we know what what it contains but we don't know how to make it so we need to look at that but that's um that's all on the on the prevention side so what can we do to prevent uh, methane it is important and it is possible but it's hard to uh to control um the other options that we have which are on the manure side so cooling of manure uh, perhaps use use additives, anaerobic digestion of manure, methane oxidations. Um, those are all measures that work. Um, we just need to find a way to, uh, 
well, what Lucas uh, mentioned, like to to, um, to see the advantage or to make it uh, economically interesting uh, to use them. Um, so I, I hope people don't think that I said we cannot reach the goals. We just need to find a way how to implement the measures. Thanks. So we have a question that's come in for Lukash. Uh, sorry, I just need to find it again. So, um, nope, it's not that one. Hold on. The questions move around, so they, uh, they get me here. Hold on. Uh, okay, so this question is from Jose Maria Castilla. Uh, so the question is, you talk about the farm-to-fork strategy as if it is approved or as if there is a legal mechanism, but the truth is that you have not yet submitted any impact studies. Should we expect, expect the same as for the emission strategy? Uh, because that's the only thing that is mandatory right now for the EC. Maybe you could just address that with the farm-to-fork strategy. Yes. Um, well, this is a you know this is a long-standing discussion, mainly in the Br in the Brussels bubble about impact assessment for the farm-to-fork strategy. So let me give you the facts, very uh, you know uh, uh, completely straight. The farm-to-fork strategy is a strategy. Uh, it's a commission communication uh, to you know be boring with bureaucratic talk. Uh, so it's a commission communication, which means that it is not a legal proposal. Uh, as such. Uh, uh, Communications typically do not have impact uh, assessments, uh, and farm to fork is not uh, is not an exception to that. Now, having said that, of course, uh, all these significant legislative uh, proposals of the of the Commission, uh, such as uh, the one coming out tomorrow on the revision of sustainable use of pesticides directive or the industrial emissions directive, which has been mentioned, uh, are accompanied by pretty impressive uh, impact assessments, which contain all the information that, uh, you know, uh, I think if the Commission can pride itself in, in, in one thing, it is certainly the robustness of its, uh, of its scientific evidence, which underpin, uh, which underpin the, uh, the, the legislation. Let me, Dave, if you allow me just to say one, one more thing uh, on that. And that is that uh, uh, last week on Friday, the Commission published a communication uh, uh, responding to the final report on the Conference for the Future of Europe. Uh, and I'm sure, you know, we, we all know about this. This has been an exercise where, uh, an unprecedented exercise where, uh, where, you know, thousands of people got together and they, citizens, and they, and they gave uh, the EU institutions uh, their wish lists, their recommendations on how to uh, on how to do policies, what should be priorities, etc., uh, etc. Et what comes out very clearly out of uh, most of the recommendations is that our citizens are primarily concerned about uh, the climate crisis, the biodiversity crisis, and their health. And this is what the Commission is trying to deliver on uh, in the context of the Green Deal, in the context of the farm to fork strategy, uh, in the context of the biodiversity strategy uh, as well. There's an overwhelming wealth of evidence showing that these actions are not only needed, uh, but they have to be both ambitious and they have to be put forward uh, urgently.
We have another question from the audience, this one for Nusa. So this question comes from Helen, Helena Miller. Uh, so uh, Helena asks, promoting cultivated meat production fueled by renewable energy could be one of the key solutions to achieving the most rapid and impactful climate change goals on a 10 to 20 year timeline. To what extent is it viewed as part of the solution and where is there opportunity to develop this agenda? Is this something you looked at all into in the report? Um, not in this report, but we had another report called The Blind Spot, which we launched before COP26 in Glasgow. And in that, we looked at what 10 of the biggest meat and 10 biggest dairy companies are doing to address their methane emissions. Uh, we also looked at alternative protein. So that includes um, cultured meat, but also fermented and plant-based products. So I would say maybe cultured meat is like with... Uh, Helena said it's like 10 to 20 years down the line. So within this time frame until 2030, it might not have such a big impact, but the other two might, the cultured and fermented, because they're already under development. Um, and yeah, there are plenty of companies out there producing them. We found that amongst the 10 biggest meat and dairy companies, they're not really kind of doing that much. Like they see that more as another product that they want to grow, driven by consumer demand, uh, they don't see this really that much as a solution to the climate crisis. And another thing that really concerned us is that we couldn't really see how much they're investing into this. So you see that they occasionally kind of uh, buy certain companies or like take over and um, then they make it part of their um, portfolio. But you don't know whether they're really doing this because they want to grow this part of the business or they're just doing it, you know, to look good. Um, the only company that actually disclosed their plan-based revenues was Danone. So it is something that we're really interested in and we have commissioned more research, but I think it's also something that Helena Wright from FAIR was saying, we need more reporting and maybe this is something where policy could give a way forward, like for example, on methane emissions, um, in the strategy, it was a cross-sectoral kind of issue that we want more companies to report their methane emissions. So why not those big meat and dairy companies as well? I'm going to put the next question from the audience to David. Uh, this question comes from Hank Goris. Uh, Given that innovation will not eliminate but merely reduce methane emissions, we may find ourselves in the future situation that we need to implement volume reduction measures anyhow. Is that a plausible scenario? And if so, shouldn't we apply these measures right away to maximize methane reduction? Um, in your research, David, would you say that that bears true? Does that make sense? Well, I suppose, James, as I said earlier, methane is a, is a necessary evil in that you cannot obliterate it. Essentially, would say it's a gas, it's a, I suppose, a, um, something that has evolved over millions of years to allow, you know, ruminant animals to utilize poor, what is poor quality forages that, you know, is not, we're not in competition directly, would say, it's, that they're non utilizable by, by humans, you know, and convert that into high quality methane milk for us. So, you know, in a scenario there, you know, where we're going towards a, a global population of 10 million people, you know, by 2050, and where I suppose most of the growth is going to occur probably in underdeveloped countries, you know, there's probably going to be 60 to 70 percent, uh, you know, uh, increase in the demand for ruminant based products for meat, let's say for milk, you know, uh, in the next 30, 40 years. You, you know, obviously, methane, you know, it's, it's really how we, we, we address. You know, first of all, the 
the, the the production you know from from developed countries and if if possible to as i mentioned earlier to better technology whether it be to just improving overall i suppose current technical efficiency but also then you know the appropriate use of i suppose strategic mitigation options you know whether they be breeding or they be dietary based or 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 or, or, or elsewhere um we also need to work very closely then with developing countries because you know we know that 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 that, that animal livestock populations are going to increase there so we need to i suppose facilitate those or help those to you know you know to, to allow that growth to happen as sustainably as possible and to minimize i suppose the impact you know from a from a global warming perspective so, so i suppose before... to answer the question sorry go ahead uh, sorry did you want to let you finish no, I was just going to say that, you know, it's, it's really the sustainable management, you know, of greenhouse gas emissions, Dave, more so than the, the obliteration, essentially. You know, so we, we do need to feed a growing world population, you know, and whether that comes from developed, I suppose, produce from developed countries or from within their own uh, borders, you know, it's going to have to happen. Thanks. Um, sorry, the screen just <laughs> turned off. Don't have the questions for you. I had, yeah, go ahead, Nusa. Great. So um, you get your screen back. I mean, from my perspective, it's really difficult position to kind of say that we shouldn't be reducing meat consumption because even if you look at the climate targets, uh, at business as usual, meat growth will be 49% of our climate budget in 2030 will be just that, you know, production of meat and dairy. And we are using huge amounts of land. 80% of land is being used to grow meat. And this is not sustainable. We can't maintain that. And what is even worse, if you look at the latest IPCC reports, you see that there's this disconnect between like business as usual, how much the industry is expecting to grow, and what the climate science says. Like the climate science says at two degrees warming, the industry will contract by up to 10%. And what happens with three degrees, four degrees? It's like... You know, transformation is inevitable. We have to we have to do it, and the faster we do it, the better it is. And that includes reduction in consumption. That includes better production methods. It includes uh, freeing up some of this land to grow nature and agroecology, so better production systems and all these things. And yeah, it's really yeah, we shouldn't be wasting our time because the time is running out. Lukash, uh, I have a bunch of questions for you from the thing. Okay, I've got it back here. Okay, so there's three questions that have come in for you. I'm going to put them to you really quick, and you can give quick answers before we close out here. So Pauline asks, in its council conclusions on carbon farming, the French presidency invited the commission to look into extending the scope of the future legislative framework to certify carbon removals and also include certification for methane emissions. What is the commission's view on this request? Second question is from Tim Dreyer. Uh, so a possible solution lies in decreasing the number of livestock on European farms. This measure is left out in the current national cap strategic plans. You were talking about these strategic plans. Is it possible to add this specific element? And finally, third question, Frederic Collu. Uh, with the phasing out of milk quotas, the number of milk cows ra rises by 20% during the last decades. Should the milk quotas come back in uh, in order to keep uh, the prices from getting too low, which drives more dairy livestock farming? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so. 
Good. All right. I'll try to be very quick. Now, on on carbon farming, uh, this is an initiative that I'm personally extremely excited about uh, because this is uh, this is a perfect example where uh, we work on uh, on on reducing those greenhouse gas emissions uh, whilst actually creating a business model uh, which is going to run uh, partly, and I think mostly outside of the common agricultural policy. So this is a new revenue stream for, for farmers, really rewarding them for, uh, for, for, for contributing to, uh, uh, to climate, climate neutrality. We're currently working on, um, on the best approach uh, towards that legal proposal, which is coming at the end of the year. The best approach is going to be determined by an impact uh, assessment. Uh, what, we need to, uh, what we need to get right in this proposal is um, is is to ensure that the certification and the verification system, uh, which will say you know one ton of carbon is when, um, is actually credible, and that's the only way how we can actually create a market for uh, uh, for 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 that. Uh, if people can actually, if the investors can actually uh, trust that. Now on the cup strategic plan. I'm not sure whether I caught the exact name of the measure. Uh, if you could just repeat this. Uh, so the CAP strategic plan, it was this idea to... Yeah, reduce the animals on land, yeah. The Common Agricultural Policy through Agri-Environment and Climate Commitments, uh, which have been there for as long as I can remember, uh, already pay for something that's called extensification. Uh, so that is basically reduce or, or adjusting the number of animals uh, to lower intensities in relation to in relation to land. So that's already a way to reward farmers uh, um, for uh, for for doing that. Um, there's a new way of uh, funding for that, uh, which is eco schemes. Now, I don't know which which of the 28 cup strategic plans do contain that possibility but legally that possibility certainly is existing uh, and as i said i would encourage everyone in this room and everyone who is watching to and who has an interest in this to make sure that their government is going to propose uh, or to resubmit the cup strategic plan which actually is fully in line with the climate law uh, with the green deal and with other commitments that the eu already has and then on frederick's uh, question on on milk waters well i mean there's no there's no it's not. It's not um, uh, something that is discussed uh, at the moment. It's not part of uh, of the of this commission. Uh, it's not part of this mandate. Uh, so, uh, you know, save my own opinions uh, on this, which don't really matter. Uh, uh, it's not part of this mandate. Well, thanks for running through that very quickly, especially on milk quotas, because I know that's very complicated, but as you say, not up uh, at the moment. Uh, so I want to thank all of our panelists for some really interesting contributions here. I think we've heard about a lot of interesting measures that are available to reduce methane emissions from the livestock sector. And we've also had a pretty robust conversation about what's po possible in terms of policy, and particularly within the different policy frameworks of the EU, um, particularly CAP. I think we've had some thoughts here about how CAP is still open to be solving this, um, but how there are 
certainly legislative challenges for that. Uh, so thank you so much to all the panelists. Thank you to the audience for asking some great questions. I'm sorry we couldn't get to all of them, uh, but they were really some well-informed questions I saw in there. Uh, so thank you so much for spending your afternoon with us. You can catch this video later if you'd like on the Euractive website or YouTube stream. And so I wish you all a wonderful afternoon. Great.